Did everyone hear the question? Well, I'd like to address the swallowing part first because um, it's a perfectly natural bodily function. (laughs) (laughs) There's a tendency to think that because it's so quiet in here, it's not okay, you know, for the body to do what it does, you know. (laughs) And so with swallowing, um, swallowing actually saves our lives. <laughs> uh, so if you look at swallowing very closely and follow it as a moment-to-moment process, you'll see that the, um, the mouth will get very, very dry. And if one is breathing through, one, through one's nose, which I do almost all of the time, the throat gets drier, 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 drier. <laughs> Dryer, and you can follow that whole process, and then there'll be a certain place where um, the saliva will come, and the saliva will just keep coming and building and building and building. And this can take, this is really interesting to follow. It can, you can follow this for minutes and minutes and minutes, and eventually you would drown if you didn't swallow. You know, it, it's really <laughs> important to swallow. Sometimes. <laughs> And it's the same with blinking. If you notice that, you know, the reason that we blink is that there's a dryness that happens in the eyes. And you can follow that process where it's dry, 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 dry. And eventually, blinking brings moisture. And then eventually, you know, it, this, the body is constantly balancing itself with air element, earth element, fire element, water element. So I would really encourage you to follow it as a process, and if one isn't resisting it, usually one can swallow quite quietly. And if we're resisting it, it tends to get to this big lump in the throat. And, you know, by the time you swallow, it does sound like it, you know, rings through the universe. (laughs) And there are times when a swallow will sound louder than you would like, you know. Um, But any... (laughs) I would just try to work with it as people around us are supposed to be noting hearing at that point. (laughs) And if if there's a version, it's just a version. Whether it's inside or outside, it's it's not a problem. The the reaction to it of self-consciousness and shame and blame and all of that is extra. And that's another process that one can follow. We all have these things that we're embarrassed about. when I used to do walking meditation in the upper walking room, I have this one toe that makes this crack every time I take a step, you know, you know and it crack. You know. It's like a frog croaking. <laughs> and I used to just get so embarrassed walking that I wouldn't. I would walk outside because. I was so <laughs> but slowly I started being able to walk, you know, with everyone. <laughs> Uh, and just to let you know, everyone's body makes some sound. Uh, you know, the heartbeat is loud, you know, if one gets really quiet. So, um, if you notice the embarrassment or the shame, or, you know, it's, that would be a really important object of consciousness to see if one can learn to accept and allow and not take personally. 
It's actually aversion. You know, all of that is a, it's a fear of judgment or um, believing that there's judgment. And we can't control, we can't control judgment, whether it comes inside the head or outside. I think the more you start to notice the judgment inside your own mind, you'll be more allowing with assuming that there's judgment outside your mind, you know, in other people's minds, because it's just, you can't control it. And it, the more you get some uh, humor and space with your own judgment, you know, it's really not a big deal. Um, sometimes I've heard you suggest that you um, metta or other brahma viharas for coming to a sitting and intend to do it for five or ten minutes and then switch to the pasana. Mm-hmm. Increasingly, or, or sometimes it seems that uh, the phrases develop a momentum of their own. It's almost like trying to stop a train. And yet it seems a good idea to go with the original conscious intent. Um, um, do you have some suggestions about mm-hmm. that? The general way to stop the train or appropriate way to do it? Did you hear the question? Yeah, okay. Um, you might pick two or three sittings where you decide to do metta the whole sitting, if it feels like it's getting that strong. Uh, and then the rest, uh, if you are choosing to do mostly vipassana, you might go 15 minutes rather than 10 minutes and then just see what happens if you let it go. What you can do is uh, let go of the phrases and then just pay attention to the quality of metta. You know, so you can do vipassana with, with switching from metta to vipassana. You can just, uh, with the momentum going, place all your mindfulness on the, on the metta and just, and just watch it change. But if it's getting strong and you, and you want to go with it, I would pick a couple of sittings a day where you do it. Do you already do that? Yes, but this is a particular. I mean, using metta as a as a, as a sort of calming technique mm-hmm. when you come into the sitting with your mind kind of scattered, which happens sometimes. <laughs> um, it, it's happened outside of retreat too, whether to keep going or to, or to stop. Even if you're doing metta mm-hmm. a lot. If it feels like you're being really called to it, just I would go with it and see what happens. I think traditionally <laughs> uh, it's usually described as jewelry, you know, <laughs> uh, high and luxurious beds, you know, perfume, uh, any kind of jewelry. Uh, 
I think you can use, you can have a relationship to people or things where you kind of use them in a greedy way to uh, make make oneself feel more powerful or more uh, respected. Or you know, sometimes people use children that way. They're just sort of these puppets or things they show off. If you're using people or things to show off, uh, it's kind of like a one of those armies of Mara in terms of conceit. I wanted to mention that uh, we still have quite a lot of precious time left on the retreat, and uh, I wanted to encourage you not to write notes to each other still. You know, that uh, some people are, are really wanting to go right up to the end and need the protection still of the silence, and the silence includes leaving notes to each other. It tends to get to the point toward the end where you'll feel, you know, this real momentum to pull yourself out. Uh, And if you're feeling more out than others, just, you know, be careful not to disturb people that are in more deep. And I think you'll find that if you tend to come out a bit, the other people being more deep will help pull you in again. And it's a natural process of kind of going out, in, out, in, toward the end. But please remember that we all need, in the retreat, protection still from, for keeping the silence. Mm-hmm. What's the exact date in which this schedule will change? The, we're going to figure that out tonight. The, the <laughs> <laughs> I think it'll probably be silent up through the 12th. And then the 13th, on the 13th, silence will break. Crack. <laughs> so there's plenty of time to really uh, learn a lot still. So please keep going. Well, I think the most important thing is is what we like or are attached to? Is it causing harm to anybody? For example, when I spoke about the different personality types, the sensuous type and the faith type are both attached to things. But in the one case, one is attached to something that can be harmful. You hold on to sense pleasures and uh, things that cause pain. Whereas in the other case, the attachment is a healthy one to Dhamma qualities. Um, I think Upandita would be disappointed if he told me not to surf anymore. <laughs> uh, unless he was able to point out the wisdom in that, that my attachment to it was somehow painful or destructive. Uh, I, I see your point about 100% because that's what it's like surfing. Each wave is impermanent. You know, and each wave is, is totally different than the one before it. There's no two alike. So surfing it in many, surfing in many ways is like uh, surfing the moment, is being in the moment. There's nothing like it before, and there'll be nothing like it again. So in, in fact, surfing is what led me 
initially to a spiritual path. <laughs> that would be my response to uh, Upandita. Did it work? <laughs> yes. So it's the, um, the most subtle of these spiritual emotions. Without it, the other ones would easily, uh, we'd come up against difficulty. For example, no matter how much we wish someone to be free of suffering, we can't control whether or not their suffering is really alleviated. Or no matter how much we wish for someone to continue enjoying their happiness and success, they, it might, uh, for them, pass away. And we can't hold that. We can't keep that. So it's the equanimity that is able to hold these opposites. It's able to hold the suffering if it continues. It's able to hold the joys if they disappear. Without that equanimity, this is mostly for our own benefit, to be balanced in the face of life's vicissitudes, changes, pleasure and pain, joy and sorrow and so forth. That's the aim of equanimity. It's to attune to, there is a lawfulness in why we all at different times experience sorrow and joy. We have no control over this lawfulness. What we put out may influence it, you know, and it, and it happens frequently that the metta that you might put out has an immense transformative effect on something or some situation. But we can't control that. It may or may not happen all the time. How they work? Well, depends on conditions. It may depend on the power of one's metta at the time. It may depend on the capacity and the karma and any other number of circumstances and conditions of the other person receiving it. You know, we, uh, that you put out metta, I would say, clearly has a positive and powerful effect in the universe if not a direct one in the place where you're sending it. You see, but we can't control how it's going to be received. Is it clear? Well, I'll have to start over there. I wonder if there's another component, uh, in that the good it does to yourself, you can't both be angry or, or aversive or something and feeling love at the same time. Is that uh, Yeah. So to cultivate a lot of meta, sort of, Undesired. Cultivating metta ultimately is for our, the, the, the most beneficial effect of cultivating any of the Brahma Viharas is the opening and balancing of our own heart. That's true. It, it, uh, it deepens the habits of, of skillful, wholesome qualities and weakens, eventually up, helps uproot the unskillful, unwholesome qualities. So that's essentially the most beneficial aspect of, this, of the practice, as I say, because we can't really say how it's going to affect the universe. Yeah. <laughs> instructions about? about are we still on the subject of Brahma Viharas?
Vipassana instructions. Anchor your attention in your in a primary breath, tip of the nostrils or body or lower abdomen. Um, anchor in tangible objects a lot at first, body, sounds. If you feel confined and constricted with the anchor in the breath, open up to sounds. Make your awareness a bit more spacious, but don't space out. Uh, gradually, as your mind becomes collected on these more uh, on these more tangible anchors, become mindful whatever appears in the sixth sense doors, moment to moment. Sure, you could be grateful just for the gift of the food. You could express that gratefulness in the practice of um, uh, appreciating or rejoicing in the, the merit of those who prepared the food. Just for your happiness. Yep. But at the same time, we we wish for metta. We wish for um, we sort of wish to send right metta to people. Of course. But now we're saying that it, it doesn't. Their happiness and joy doesn't depend upon our wishes. That's right. And then the other part, I understand the, the ownership. The sound is very esoteric, you know. New age, you own your own actions. You right. take responsibility for right. your actions. Right. Again, the phrases are helping, you see, equanimity, like any of the other uh, Brahma Viharas, are, are archetypal. They're in the hard wiring, they're there inside in, within each of us. We use the phrases as a way of cultivating that. To say that, you know, may you be happy and free of suffering and so forth is actually helping to evoke the state of metta that emanates loving kindness. It's not so much just a, a thought as a whole experience, as an attitude of love and care. And of course, what it translates to is we want everybody to, we love everybody, we feel the connected the whole experience as an attitude of love and care. And of course, what it translates to is we want everybody to, we love everybody, we feel the connectedness, and we want them to be happy and free of suffering and, and enjoy, you know, continue to enjoy happiness and success and so forth. The equanimity simply means that uh, that's not the case in the world. We can't control. Sometimes there's happiness, sometimes there's uh, sorrow. So the equanimity is the balance in the face of that. The phrases indicate that uh, there is no control, that instead it's, it's part of the mystery, it's part of the law, it's part of the nature of the universe, that we all reap the good and the bad. There's, there's, there's a law to it. We can't explain it. It's incomprehensible. But there's a law to every moment why we experience happiness and sorrow. The ownership part is just the translation of the, of the phrase kamasaka, 
which means to be the heir, the recipient of our own actions. <laughs> 